It kind of starts when I was 13. When I was 13 um, is sort of when everything started to go left because I was a really, really competent kid. We moved every three years when I was growing up and it wasn't military. It was just my dad would get promoted within the company and it would always be in a different state. And third grade going into middle school, for some reason, that was just a pivotal point. And that was the year that I was first introduced to alcohol. That was the year I started um, experimenting with bulimia. And so when I think back, it's like pre-13 years old, everything was great, just sunshine. And then after that, it was like I had this cloud over me all the time. And um, um, Can I ask you who introduced you? Was it a fellow student? No, it was. So I come from a very large Italian family okay, and a very long line of alcoholics. And so I actually got introduced to alcohol the first time on a fam- at a family reunion. Um, and it was two of my cousins that got me drunk. And one of the things I remember about growing up, my mother never drank, and it was kind of like my mom was the angry person over in the corner who wasn't having fun, and everybody <laughs> else would have more and more fun as the night went on, you know? Okay, because they were getting more and more drunk. Yes, exactly. Right? Exactly. <laughs> right. And so that just kind of continued. 13 was when it started, and it was here and there. And then when I was 14, I started to run around with some kids that, you know, kind of lived a little more on the wild side. When I was 15, we moved to Highlands Ranch, um, kind of your your hood, um, Lisa, yeah, the Highlands Denver Ranch. area. Colorado. Yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah know we that. lived. Yeah, we lived there for four years. And at this point in my life, I was so tired of moving every three years. I The only thing I wanted in life was to be accepted, to be liked, to be popular. I wanted boys to like me. I had no self-esteem whatsoever. I, I would drink. I would make horrible choices. I would have to live with the consequences. And because of that pain, I would drink more. And so by the time I was in high school, the cycle was you know, well underway. And so by the time I graduated from high school, I was absolutely socially dependent on alcohol. And by the time I graduated from college, I was a full-fledged alcoholic. I have to tell you, I have like pain in the pit of my stomach. I just felt physical pain at this being your story. I mean, that's just such a difficult thing to, to be, you know, to be a social alcoholic at such a young age. Did people know, did your family and did your friends, were they all just aware of it or how did that work? Well, you know, in college, kind of everybody was, you know, I mean, I was never without a drinking buddy in college and my family, my mom would get concerned with my drinking every now and then. But you know, when you're an addict, you're also a really good liar. I grew up on stage, so I was a really good actress anyway. It was very easy for me to lie about it. There, there were no, no hesitation there at all. And so I I think I was just kind of a, a master at covering it up. And, and when I talk about the alcoholism, that's it's like looking at it from 30,000 feet. One morning, I woke up in a different city. Um, and, and that was like, that's one story out of decades of stories. I mean, I had so many um, terrible decisions and, and things like that. And so while I was drinking, I was also stockpiling shame. Does that make sense? Can you just unpack that just a little bit? What do you mean? I want to think about it for a second. What do you mean when you were you say you were stockpiling shame? Well, I would I would go out 
I would drink until I, I, you know, I would drink until I would pass out. And oftentimes I would wake up at someone else's house, wouldn't know how I got there. Um, I would hear a week later about how some people were talking about something I had been at the center of. So I was a topic Mm -hmm. of conversation. Um, Mm -hmm. During this time, I still had an eating disorder. And so uh, I dropped an alarming amount of weight and the, the, my sorority sisters, honestly, I I harbor no ill will because they didn't know what to do with me. I, I wouldn't have known what to do with me, but all of a sudden, one day I had, you know, like seven or eight close, close friends, just best friends, like sisters. You know, when, when you're in college, they're an extension of your family. And then it seemed like the very next day I turned into a walking conversation stopper. And so deactivated my sorority while I was in college um, and, you know, started running around with a different group of friends. And so all of these bad decisions I had made and the consequences of them, you know, just more and more and more to live with. And the funny thing, Lisa, is that all this time, I was not only, I not only had a relationship with the Lord, I, for years, starting when I was in seventh grade, I had been reading the Bible front to back. I would start in Genesis, I would read to Revelation, and I would start over. So I was not without the Lord. So I was also constantly going against my conscience. And so there were ramifications there, and there was this distance between myself and the Lord that was growing. And and the Lord will not let his own wander off for very long until the conviction just starts to increase and increase and increase. And I I got myself wrapped up in in a really bad, emotionally abusive relationship. Okay, so we're going to stop right there with Rebecca's story because the story is going to cover the next four days. Part two is tomorrow. And so listen tomorrow to find out what this emotionally abusive relationship led her to do. And then as her life continues, the lies and the hiding and the addiction and so much that almost seems impossible to turn around but God in Rebecca Carroll's life. And so I'm really excited about sharing this story with you this week on Life with Lisa Williams. To learn more about Rebecca, go to loveserveshine.com or the radio station where she works, kcbi.org. I don't know about you, but this weekend has been, at least for me, such an introspective weekend thinking about um, racism and and pain and forgiveness and love and evil and what motivates and listening to parts of the sermon from the church where the shooting happened in Charleston this weekend. Again, I was so deeply moved thinking about pain and forgiveness and the power of God to turn something that was meant for evil to good. And then I heard this song from Stephen Curtis Chapman, and God has really given this man a gift because he's able to capture so much that so many of us have thought about so deeply and put it in a song that it it goes into the soul. And so I'm hoping that this song uh, touches you as it has me. And if you would like to see Stephen singing his heart out, just sitting on a couch in his house, singing the song then come to lifewithlisawilliams.com. Tears have fallen in Charleston 
They're asking why And no one has the answers Our hearts are breaking for Charleston So many lives In a moment shattered The thief came To steal and to kill and destroy But the story isn't over You will not be They were gathered in Charleston Cause they believed in a kingdom coming And while they're grieving for Charleston We won't forget the love that they were showing When the thief came to steal and kill and destroy that love will not be silent You will not be overcome You will not be overcome by evil You will overcome evil with good And love will not be overcome Love will not Father of mercies, God of all comfort, comfort every broken heart, comfort every broken heart, Father of mercies, God of all comfort. Evil with good